Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Zach Glazer. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 301 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, Laura is talking with Amy Gallo about dealing with conflict in the workplace and how we can effectively communicate with those who have different perspectives from us. Today's podcast is brought to you by Better Legal, LawPay, Text Expander, and Back Office Betties. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned, and we'll tell you more about them later on. So, Zach, uh, we just got back from virtual Clio Cloud Conference. I think this was Clio's ninth or tenth cloud conference, but the first that didn't happen in person. Lawyerist has been a longtime attendee of Clio Con, and other than maybe ABA Tech Show and a small handful of other events, it's one of the places that small law firms get together and we learn about trends in the industry and new legal technology, interact with our community and vendors. Um, And it's historically been one of our favorite places for bringing people together in addition to our own Lawyerist LabCon events. And this year was a little bit of a change in that it was all on the internet. Yeah, it's nice that they that they teed it up and took the lead and did a a very good, very um, thorough virtual conference. Obviously, there are some issues that go along with that. There's going to be some lack of connection, but I think they did a very good job, and I'm really excited that they did it. Mm-hmm. And this was your first CleoCon, right? It was. It was. So I, I really don't have anything to to compare it to. And if, if in-person CleoCons are better than, than that, then, <laughs> you know, they're great. <laughs> I look forward to going to one. Uh-huh. Well, I'm curious uh, for those listeners who weren't able to attend what you took away as some of the two or three biggest takeaways from CleoCon 2020 virtual. So, yeah, I, I think one of the things that I was going into it with a a question about was, you know, how do we maintain these virtual conferences if we do have to maintain them for a while? And the biggest question with that is, are we getting sponsor interactions? And I think that uh, Clio did a good job of trying to connect people with sponsors. I think that sponsors were able to talk to people. Sponsors were able to put on, you know, little shows and, and, things like that. And so I think they did a good job of creating some sponsor interaction and creating some kind of secondary interaction around the the conference. Mm-hmm. And one of the, I mean, there were celebrity keynoters and celebrity chefs and big name musicians doing entertainment. But one of the big events at CleoCon every year is Jack Newton's opening keynote. I'm curious what kind of takeaways you had from Clio related announcements. Yeah, so obviously Clio always has some um, interesting stuff that they want to talk about at the Clio conference, and I think it's great that they they have this kind of build up. The big one, I think, well, there there were really two. The first is Clio's Connect. You know, their new way of trying to connect attorneys with their clients and trying to make a, a secure mechanism for interacting with your clients. And I think that's something people are looking for 
There are other programs out there that try to do this, but I, I think that's a good direction to go. Obviously, there's some space for growth for Clio, but I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the connection that that you know, application that they're making. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, they're diving into Microsoft Office 365. You know, they're they're creating a lot of good connections, a lot of integrations with Microsoft Office, specifically Microsoft Teams, and creating a way for lawyers to work out of that other software and incorporate it into Clio. So I'm excited about that and see where they go with that as well. Cool. And beyond kind of product updates, were there any small firm legal industry trends that you were particularly keen on hearing more about? So the first thing I saw coming into um, the auditorium, as, as it were, is people talking about project management systems and what project management systems they're using and what interacts with Clio. And this is something that, that I run into a lot in talking with attorneys and, and trying to get them to use their legal tech systems as best they can is how are we using these project management systems like Asana, like Monday, um, you know, and then Microsoft has has the planner app. So I saw a lot of people talking about and thinking about how to incorporate these, these actual Kanban boards into their practice. And I, I think that it's a place ripe for growth. Cool. So now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Chad from Better Legal and then Laura's conversation with Amy. I'm Chad Sakonchik. I am the founder of Better Legal. Well, welcome to the podcast. I know one challenge that comes up for plenty of solo and small firm lawyers is getting asked to do something that you don't do as a regular course of business in your practice. And I think those business formation documents is a great example of this. So can you tell me a little bit more about how Better Legal helps attorneys with that process? Yeah. So as we've been providing business formation services, we wanted to enable our tech to be used as a tool for attorneys. And so originally we we're going after attorneys that provide business formation services, but they seem to already have their own processes. So what we did learn in our discussions with attorneys is there are a lot of different types of attorneys and those types of attorneys that don't do business formation services usually farm that out or refer someone else. And then the individual that immediately went to them to be their lawyer or to ask the question, they've now passed off to someone else. So what we're doing is we're enabling every attorney to provide business formation services with our tech, which in our opinion is the best in the industry. I think that's really important. So where do attorneys stop and your service picks up? What point in that process does that happen? So what some attorneys do is they just have a link in their email signature or a link on their website. And it says, for business formation services, whether you need an LLC or a corporation, click here. It goes to our white labeled site right now. It's something like abclawfirm.betterlegal.com, but we're working to completely white label it. So this will eventually look like your website or your service that you've potentially created your, yourself. So they send the link and the client gets dropped on a form. They fill out the form. We do all the state filing, the EIN filing, the generation of the legal documents. We can use our legal documents, or if you have your own, we can use your legal documents. And then we provide all of those documents back to you for you to deliver to the client. So we take the payment, but as soon as we take out our transaction fee and it hits our bank account, we send a snail mail check back out to you. So you're actually making money on our service without actually having to pay us anything if you're on the free tier of our subscription. 
So tell me a little bit more about that free tier. That is a common thing for a lot of attorneys of, hey, this sounds great. Let me try it before I make a bigger commitment. So what is included at the free level? Yeah. So for the free tier, we provide two formations a month. So if you've got only one or two people coming in here and there that need formations, you don't have to sign up for our service, but you can be an account holder of our service and provide that service to your clients as they come in and make money. So say you charge $300 or $299, which is what we usually charge our direct to consumer clients. You can charge $299. We will take that money plus a state filing fee and we will send you a check for the the difference. That sounds great, especially if you don't do formations and you don't want to handle all of that paperwork in between. So what is the distinction between the free and the paid account? I know that you're piloting some new things pretty soon, so I want to make sure I cover that distinction. Yeah. The free tier is two formations a month that you get for free. The paid tier is $99 a month, and that allows you to do unlimited formation. So if you start doing three, four, five formations a month, we believe that now you're making enough money to where it makes sense to, to pay us a, a small recurring fee. But on top of that, you are able to pad our existing subscriptions. So the way that we make money is by providing registered agent service and state compliance service to the clients. And so you as a paid partner account will now be able to pad on top of our normal fee to start earning that passive income. So we charge $90 a year for each one of these services. You could charge, say, $150 and earn $60 a year per client uh, for each one of these services. And so if you're doing 50 a year, that starts to add up pretty quickly. Yeah, it does, especially under that rev share model where you can see some passive income coming in, which isn't always easy for law firms to create that kind of passive income and have a whole service that they offer where they don't have to do a whole lot of the heavy lifting. If you are listening and you are curious about trying things out at the free tier, you can visit partner.betterlegal.com to learn more. My name is Amy Gallo. I'm the author of the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. I'm a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review and the co-host of the HBR's Women at Work podcast. So you're definitely the go-to expert on a lot of these work and conflict issues, and you've done a lot of writing and thought leadership around this. One of my early questions is, you know, sometimes it seems like people don't understand what a conflict is or isn't. So can you define what you would consider an actual conflict at work rather than something like a misunderstanding? Or, you know, I can see where people might be like, well, I didn't think that was an actual disagreement or an argument, but someone else might interpret it differently. Yeah. And that's for sure. Conflict is in the eye of the beholder. So someone can think you're having an all out fight while you may think, oh, you know, we're just, this is just a normal, you know, interaction at work. It's certainly in the eye of the beholder. The way I think about it, though, is it's where two people or more people have needs, um, values, or um, goals that don't align. And in that process of trying to align those things or trying to achieve a different goal, those things clash. And as a result, it, and sometimes it doesn't even have to be spoken, but as a result, 
there's a hindrance to actually achieving what you're what you're trying to get done. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like your own personality contributes to how you might perceive these differently. And I would think one of the initial challenges is if you're in a workplace where you've kind of gone towards one of the less effective behaviors, say avoiding conflict or sparking it all of the time. How do you start that process in your workplace of letting people know, you know, we're going to do things differently from here on out. We're going to acknowledge when there are conflicts and these are the ways we're going to try to handle them. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things to do. And and so few leaders actually do this, discuss how are we going to disagree? What are we going to do when we have a difference of opinion? And yet, I think it's one of the most valuable things that a leader can do or a manager can do to say, you know, and I don't think you have to harp on the past and say, we've all been really passive aggressive with each other. Although, you know, maybe maybe it's helpful to acknowledge that. But you can say, you know, one thing as a, as a leader that we've, as a team that we've never discussed is, what will we do when we don't see eye to eye? Um, what will we do when we feel like someone else is disrespecting us or isn't taking our perspective? What will we do when we hit a roadblock with this project and we have a hard time moving forward? How will we handle that discussion? And I think it's an incredibly helpful thing to do. And I do this with with some quite a few leadership teams is to establish norms around how are we going to disagree? And that alone often really preempts a lot of conflict because now we've accepted that it's okay that we don't see eye to eye. And we know there's a process in place or at least a stated process in place for having to hash those things out because conflict and disagreements is a normal, inevitable part of interacting with other human beings. And to think that you would be on a team that would never disagree is not only wrong, but you shouldn't want that. There's no conflict-free utopia for these for teams. In fact, you want to have disagreements because there's a lot of good that comes from having healthy, constructive conflict. So one of the things you've talked about is that everybody internally is running through the risks and benefits of approaching conflicts. And I feel like that could be really problematic when your past experience within a team or within an organization has been really bad when conflicts come up. So it feels like it's really risk heavy, although it might have been the approach or the makeup of that team. So I I wondered like if you're the person who's like, okay, I'm going to address this. We're, you know, I recognize their risks and benefits, but let's try a new approach. I wondered how much you get perceived as now like the conflict starter when in the past you might have been the person who just <laughs> kind of kept quiet for the sake of not letting things get any worse. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is there is definitely risk to being the person who says, hey, we need to be more upfront about this, or, you know, we need to stop taking personal jabs at one another when we discuss this topic or whatever it is, right? There is risk to doing that. But in my experience and what I what I've seen in my work is that people who have this ability to facilitate productive discussion and to help a team get out of what might be sort of interpersonal, unhealthy dynamics, really is often seen as a leader. And whether that means they end up being a formal leader or just an informal leader, it is a really valuable skill. So rather than sort of being pegged as, oh, you're just trying to stir the pot, I think often if you do it well, if you do it skillfully, being the person who says, you know, I just feel like the dynamic here isn't working. Can we change the dynamic in some way? 
is is a really smart thing to do. Yeah, that does sound like it's a great way to reframe the process. I think a lot of us default to when there is a conflict thinking, well, this is a personality-based issue, right? This person and me, we just don't have the same approach to the way that we think about things. But you've talked about that that isn't always accurate, that it's, you know, 80 or 90% personality conflicts. You know, you've gone through some different examples. So can you talk about some of the different types of conflicts and how do we know when it really is a personality issue versus something else? Sure. So, and, and personality conflicts definitely happen. I mean, there are people I work with where we just rub each other the wrong way, right? Like it's just not, we can't expect to get along with everyone that, that we work with, but more often than not, especially in a work context, conflicts at least have roots in other types of conflicts. So for example, one of the most common is task, and that's a disagreement over the goal, what we're trying to achieve. And it may be that we disagree over the goal, and as a result, we disrespect one another. So it's also a personality conflict. And that's that's the trick is, you know, conflicts are often a hot mess of all of these types, but it's helpful to understand what's actually happening and to address each thread at a time. So you've got task conflict. The second most common type is process. So we might agree on the goal, but we disagree about how we're actually going to do that. So maybe we agree that the goal is to you know, increase customer satisfaction, but I think we're going to do that by rolling out a new initiative to our most important customers. And you think we're going to roll that initiative out to all of our customers, right? Or most of the process conflicts I see often are about timing too. So how quickly does this need to happen? You know, lots of finger pointing around efficiency and, and are we moving fast enough or are we taking too long? And then the fourth type is, so we've got task, process, personality or relationship. And then the fourth is status. And that's a disagreement over who gets to make the call, who has the authority or who's in charge. Those also tend to be really tricky because like personality, they touch our ego, our identity, or our sense of self. So when you have a conflict, I suggest thinking about which of these four types are going on. And again, it might be all four, it might be two, it might be one. But if there is a task or process conflict to start there, because those tend to be much easier to solve um, because they're focused on the work. And sometimes you solve those. And as a result, the personality conflict, the relationship conflict, or the status conflict tends to go away or at least get easier to discuss because we've now shown we can be on the same page about something. And that helps alleviate some of the, the personality. You did ask, you know, how do we know if we're actually having a personality conflict? I think the real thing to ask yourself is like, do one of or more of us feel disrespected? And is it really just about the way we're interacting, not the content of what we're interacting about? And that that would point to to a relationship conflict. That's really valuable to separate out that idea of the content of what's being discussed and then sort of the feelings and the disrespect that one or more people might be feeling. It seems like one of the hardest lines to walk would be when you're having one of those status or standing rooted conflicts, because most companies have a clear hierarchy that everyone generally operates within, but then you have many people in the company that have future goals to move up and progress and get promotions. So how do you balance that natural progression 
with how it relates to conflicts? Because it feels like that would just be a really difficult one to deal with when you notice that it's the primary driver. Yeah. I mean, if the primary driver is about personality, I, I think that one of the things that you need to ask yourself is what is the role I'm playing here? Because as far as I know, and I've tried really, really hard, you cannot change someone else's personality. Right. <laughs> and it, it and and trust me, I have tried. So really what's really in your control is your reaction. And and to look at how am I contributing to the unhealthy dynamic between us. Now that's not to say this person isn't objectively annoying or objectively obnoxious, right? They might be, but if you need to get something done, if you need to collaborate with this person, you've got to find a way to work. And one of the things, this actually piece of advice comes from a book called Optimal Outcomes that I really like about conflict resolution. And the author, Jen Goldman Wetzler, talks about taking a pattern-breaking action. So often what's happening in these, as you're talking about these sort of long-standing disagreements or, or, or ways of interacting that aren't healthy is that we get into patterns, right? That person acts passive aggressive, so you shut down, or that person starts to yell and you yell back, whatever that pattern is. And really ask yourself, what could I do differently here, right? What would be different from the, the usual pattern? If I usually shut down when this person starts to get angry, what if I stood my ground? How would that change the dynamic? And really, I think anytime you're trying to resolve longstanding difficult, entrenched um, conflicts, you also want to think about it not as what is the resolution? What's the magic wand I can you know, wave or the silver bullet? But instead, think of them as, as a series of tiny experiments. What can I try and see what, how that changes things? What can I learn from taking a different approach or from saying this in a different tone or from involving another person? And that's not going to resolve it immediately. It might if you're lucky, but that will give you some sense of what works and what doesn't. And so you can keep trying new things and keep learning and eventually hopefully break that pattern. And that requires so much self-awareness, right? Because it feels like it's so easy to get into these patterns where, you know what, when we have budget meetings, we always know it's going to be a disaster. And whenever I interact with this person one-on-one to discuss a process, they always yell and then I back down. And it's so easy to just internalize that as like, well, that's just the way things are, right? Like, oh, great. I have a budget meeting on my calendar. Let me just brace myself for how badly this is going to fall apart and get off track. And so it does require you as the individual to ask those important questions of, okay, what could I do differently? Like holding this other person or other people might not (laughs) be ready for that level of asking themselves those questions, but how do I shift in these little important moments? That feels really key. Yeah. And we, I mean, we're only as self-aware as we are self-aware, right? Because I I mean, I think, I think I know myself really well, but I bet if I interviewed the 10 people I have the most conflicts with in my life, they would say something very different about how I, how I behave. And so I think it is about constantly asking yourself, what am I doing here? What can I do different? Realize we think our intention is so clear to the other person. And that's not always the case, right? Like really getting to know yourself and engaging in an honest, curious conversation with this other person, assuming they're capable of that, right? About well, what's going on here? Like, I feel like I keep saying this and your reaction is this. Is, is there something I can do differently? And that's really also coming from a place of how can I change, not you need to change. 
you know, no one in the history of the world ever calmed down, for example, by being told to calm down in the middle of a conversation, right? And a heated conversation. So really focus on what can I do differently to alter the dynamic, not what this other person needs to do. And most people probably aren't expecting that shift in the conversation to go that way. And so that really feels like a nice way to kind of diffuse the high energy and tension in the moment of just like, okay, let's like take a pause and let's see what what can we do differently and this is how this is appearing. Yeah. It's having the conversation about the conversation, <laughs> right? That meta conversation can be really helpful. I love it. We'll take a quick break to hear from some of our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about how to decide what you're going to do when a conflict emerges. Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay, as the ability to accept payments online becomes an increasingly essential part of your practice. LawPay provides your firm with a proven and trusted solution. With LawPay, you receive a simple, secure way to accept client credit cards and e-check payments from anywhere. LawPay understands the unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, which is why their solution was developed specifically to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect IOLTA accounts from any third-party debiting, giving you peace of mind that your transactions are always handled correctly. To learn more or to get started, visit lawpay.com lawyerist today. Get it right every time. Text Expander makes it easy to give your team the right words for every situation. Whether you need to keep legal happy or delight customers with effective answers, you can rest easy knowing your team has it covered. The latest version of Text Expander even has new and improved statistics reporting for organizations, including the ability to build reports with customizable date ranges for enterprise and individuals, so you can track how much time your team saves. With Text Expander, you can keep your team consistent, accurate, and current, work faster and smarter, keep the whole team communicating efficiently and with consistent language, and share your snippets of messaging, signatures, and descriptions with everyone who works on projects with you. Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And Lawyerist Podcast listeners get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com podcast to learn more. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Betty's are ready to help you grow your firm, even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebetty's.com lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use the promo code PODCAST to receive $150 off your first month. All right, we're back. So now that we know how to think about our role in the process and the different types of conflict being that key route to determining what sort of conversation we have, you mention in the book several different ways that we deal with conflict. And again, most of us kind of go to our default of, you know, one of a few ways of handling it. Can you talk a little bit about what most people tend to do when it comes to a conflict and how to decide what is sort of right in the moment? Yeah. So most of us have, because conflict is stressful, most of us have a default response that we go to when we're under stress. And for people who tend to avoid, that's the flight and the fight or flight reaction, they tend to let the conflict go or just not even address it. And I'm a big fan of the letting it go option. I actually think it's a really, I think it's an underused option in many places. 
but I can't, it can't be a knee jerk reaction to the situation. It has to be a thoughtful, planned approach based on what the situation is. And it can't, you know, there's two caveats I say to this option, the, the let it go option, which is one, if you are an avoider, if you tend to avoid conflict, you know, by default, and you say, oh, I love this option. I do this all the time, right? It can't be, it can't be a default reaction. And two, if you say, oh, I love to let it go, or yeah, I'm going to let this go, but then you go, you know, call your work BFF and talk their ear off about the situation and talk to your spouse at night about it. And, you know, it's what you think about, you know, when you're up at 2 a.m., right? That's not letting it go. That's doing a lot of something. So you really have to be able to say, I'm just going to let this pass. And this is a really great option if you think this is a one-off situation. If you think, for example, the person's under extreme stress and reacting out of the norm. And it can also be a good option if your experience tells you this person is not capable of a rational conversation about this. So you may let it go, you know, sort of take the high road and say, I didn't enjoy that conversation, but I know going deeper into it is not going to solve the situation. So the second most common is to address directly. Now, if you in your sort of fight or flight are more of a fight, this might be where you go most quickly, right? It's like, I'm just going to hash this out, right? I'm going to pick up the phone, get on a Zoom uh, call with this person, walk down the hall if you're if you're in an office. And that also is a great option. I, I actually talk a lot in the book about how to handle this option because I do think it's usually often the best course. Um, but if you're a seeker, if you're someone who, as you said earlier, sparks conflict, you may go to this option much too quickly and it may intimidate or or um, make the other person feel overwhelmed and it may not result in a great conversation. So you have to think about, am I in the right mindset to sit down and have this conversation? Is the other person capable of it? And if so, yeah, okay, sit down and, and hash it out. I do think that seekers tend to go into that conversation too quickly. and don't do enough prep. And I do think if we're gonna, if you're going to sit down and hash it out, you have to do some prep. That doesn't mean hours of self-reflection, but you have to ask yourself a few questions um, before you get into the room. The other two options that I, that I talk about in the book is to address indirectly. And this is an option that takes a lot of skill and not a lot of people do this well, but I've seen it work really well when people have the right skills. And that's this is where you might use a story or a metaphor. You might even involve a, a third person in, in the conversation where you're not really saying, wow, we disagree or wow, we don't see eye to eye here. But you might say, you know, I was on a team that faced the same thing last year and here's what we did. Right. So you're not it's a way to allow the other person to save face. It's a way to allow someone who may be not capable or self-aware enough to have the conversation about the conflict to to engage in the content without having to sort of put a lot on the line, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And I couldn't agree with you more about addressing it indirectly being such a challenge because I think that's the one that it's easiest for us to identify, oh, I've been in that situation when someone did it wrong. Yes. And it felt like, oh, so-and-so said that. They didn't say my name, but I know they were talking about me and that was really shady and I didn't appreciate that it was called out in the company meeting, like clearly, you know, quietly calling me out. So I think it's important to talk about 
that role of deciding when culture goes into that, right? Like you talked about saving face, right? There are certain cultures where that really is a good option to go to because it would be more appropriate. So what role does company culture or outside, you know, country culture or whatever mm-hmm. play in making that decision about whether indirect is right? Yeah. I mean, that that's a big piece of it is that what's the norm in the culture you're operating in? Like you said, whether it's your team culture, organizational culture, regional culture, or national culture, it's helpful to ask yourself, how are these things typically handled? Now, that doesn't mean that's the right way to handle it, but you have to consider that because if you're going to do something outside that norm, you have to think through the risks of doing that. So certainly taking an indirect approach might work really well in certain cultures. The question I think you have to ask yourself is that, am I doing this because it feels most comfortable to me? So, you know, your example of someone saying, that person essentially called me out in front of the company, but never used my name, right? That's the passive aggressive approach. So if you're using the indirect approach because you think it's going to be easier for you or because you're afraid of having the direct conflict or direct conversation, that's not a good reason. It has to be the thing that's most likely to get the right result without hurting the other parties. Because if you get to a resolution and you and the other person hate each other, that's not useful, right? Like a good resolution has to mean that you have your relationship intact, assuming you had a relationship previously. Um, So culture plays a big role. And it's a matter of thinking through, because oftentimes we're even having these conflicts with people from other cultures. So you need to do a little perspective taking, maybe even a little research about what, you know, what's the level of confrontation, direct confrontation that's comfortable in that person's culture and how will that influence how we have our own conversation here? Addressing it directly feels then like a good choice a lot of the time if you've taken into consideration all of those factors. Would you say that if you've tried addressing a conflict directly or a person directly a lot and it just hasn't gone well, is that when you start thinking about, okay, this is actually a dysfunctional team or this isn't a person I can work with and I actually need to exit this role or this organization? Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's the, what I call the last resort option, right? You have to have tried, you know, hopefully many different approaches, maybe, you know, letting it go, addressing directly and addressing indirectly. And then you decide to exit the relationship. And the reality is it's just not always a possibility for everyone, right? So I may not be able to leave my job because financially I need this job, or I may love all aspects of my job except working with this one person. So, you know, you need to have tried many things and and tried many pattern breaking things to see if you can, can make it work. But sometimes it is the right thing to do, especially if you're you know, feeling mentally or physically exhausted by the conflict, if it's overtaking um, your life outside work, if it means you're not able to excel and get where you want to go in the organization, you certainly need to think about, is this the right role? Is this the right team for me? You know, exiting doesn't necessarily mean quitting. You don't have to have to always leave the organization to get out of the relationship, but you may be able to you know, reduce the amount of interaction you have with this person. You may be able to get transferred to another team. There's a story in the book of a a woman who had a real difficult uh, conflict with her manager and was considering leaving the organization because 
you know, how do you exit the relationship with your manager and ended up going to HR and without being explicit about the conflict was still able to get moved to another department and and built a case for why she would be more valuable in that other department. And it worked. She stayed at the, she actually retired from the organization many years later. So there are other ways, there's other options. I hate to give people the advice, you just have to quit because not many of us are in the position to do that. Right. Yeah. That seems really fair. And it's important to remember that that is your last resort and you want to try other things first. So much of this is really about knowing yourself, but then it also has that second layer of finding out what your colleagues are. Are they the avoider? Are they the conflict seeker? Uh, What do the conflicts tend to bubble up around for particular people? How do we go about finding this information out about our colleagues? You mentioned that if you try and you can't find this information, it is still possible to have productive conversations. So I'd love to just chat about that a little bit. Yeah. And I think the, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of observation, watching the people you work with, you know, did when they were challenged in a meeting, did they shut down or did they fly off the handle? You know, you can learn a lot from just observing your colleague's behavior. And certainly if you have a trusting relationship with someone, you can even ask, you know, how do you like to handle conflict? How, what's your reaction here? We, we tend to get a lot of information just from working with people, but it's also okay to have direct conversations with people about their style. And if you're a team leader, I even recommend, you know, having conversations. How do you prefer to handle conflicts? Do you think of yourself as someone who avoids them or as someone who sparks them? Um, I think that can be a really useful conversation for a team to have because then everyone has the information. But as you said, it's not always possible. Sometimes you're working with someone from another department who you've never worked with before and you have no context or someone from another organization that your company is is partnering with and you don't you don't have that information. And that's where you just need to tread carefully as you go into that conversation and, and watch for signals for how they're responding to any time you, you know, raise a disagreement or perhaps push back. And that'll give you some cues as to how, how you can handle the conversations with that person. Sometimes I've gone, you know, I'll have a couple email interactions with someone who I haven't worked with before. I can think of one person in particular where her emails kept coming back. They were so short. Um, there was no, you know, no emojis, no exclamation points, right? Like it was just very, it felt to me very curt. And I actually had a friend in the organization who had worked a lot with this other person. So I went to that third person and said, can you tell me a little bit about her? And she said, oh, working mom, super efficient. You won't get a lot of warmth in her emails, but she's really committed and and really wonderful to work with. And that completely changed my perspective on how to interact with this person and just accept, you know, she's not trying to be rude. She's just being really um, efficient with her time. And as long as I remind myself about that, I don't get, you know, I don't get upset about, um, her shortness or her, or her curtness with me. I love that point because you can learn a lot from other people, even if you don't have the option to interact or get that detail from the person directly. That happens often with remote teams, which I've been working remotely for almost 10 years now. And there's been times when I would say, 
man, that email, just the tone of it felt weird or that Slack message was different. And then you would get on a video call and it was like a whole different person, right? And it was just, that was their method of communicating in that written medium. And so you always have to dig for those additional details to try not to take it so personally when you get some of those other messages. Yeah. Well, and I always say, give the person the benefit of the doubt, right? Like presume positive intent because not out of generosity, although I think being generous is good, more because it gets you out of that stuck rumination of like, why is this person being a jerk? Why is she so rude? Right. And, and which is not, that's not helpful to you to be in that frame of mind if you're trying to collaborate with someone. So presuming that, you know, wow, this person must be under a lot of stress or this person's probably really rushing because they have a busy day or this person was up all night um, with a sick kid last night, right? Just anything you can tell yourself that puts you in a more positive frame of mind means that your interaction is going to go better. It's a good strategic move, not necessarily a generous move. So many valuable tips here for evaluating conflict, deciding what your role in diffusing it or engaging in it is, and being self-aware and mindful of who you're working with during this episode. Thank you so much for your time and insight. There's so much more of what you shared in your written works. And so I encourage people to go check that out. Where else can people go to learn a little bit more about you? Sure. They can check out my website, uh, which is www.amyegallo.com. You can also find me on a various social media with that same handle, Amy E. Gallo. Um, most of my writing is at hbr.org. So if you go there and search for my name, you'll find a lot of my articles and, and my book as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. This was great. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Christopher Eng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read The Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com slash community slash lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by their participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh,